Well, good morning, and let us turn to Ezra chapter 10 this morning as we come to the last chapter in this wonderful book of Ezra. Now, if you remember from Ezra chapter 9, Ezra had been back in Jerusalem for about four months. Uh, No doubt the excitement was beginning to die down in his heart. Uh, Probably this was the first time he'd ever been back in the ancient homeland of his ancestors. But after four months, Ezra got devastating news. And he was told in chapter 9 that sin had got in to the people of God. The holy city had unholy people living within its walls. And the very sin that the original inhabitants of the nation of Israel that led God to drive them out into exile and to punish them was now being practiced. They were intermarrying with the pagan nations around them. And that would lead them inevitably into not just compromise, but eventually idolatry and would bring God's judgment upon the nation again. Now, many believers, when they hear of the sins of the saints or sins of other believers, react in many different ways. Some lash out in anger and frustration. Some just shake their heads in a self-righteous way and say, uh, I'm glad I'm not like that. Some ignore it. Some, because of relationship or because they don't want to confront it, they just try to cover it up or say, it's not my problem. But Ezra does none of those things. In fact, Ezra models for us how you deal with a sinning saint when the information comes to you. And he gives us a model for how we must react when we hear of a backslider in our, among our friends, in our family, in our church circle. And you notice the first thing he did in chapter 9 was he paused, didn't rush into judgment. He didn't rush into action. In fact, the Bible says his first reaction was to grieve and then wait upon the Lord. And no doubt he was seeking God's wisdom and how to deal with this matter. He was examining his own life, his own heart, that he would say the right thing at the right time with the right motive. And then we notice, secondly, he fasted and prayed before the Lord. And that was to demonstrate the intensity of his desire to focus on this matter, that this had to be sorted out and that he would set aside the normal uh, necessities of life, of food and drink, in order to focus in prayer to the Lord. He really recognized, I need God. I need his guidance. I need his grace. You see, it's not what you say just that has to be right, it's how you say it. The Apostle Paul says, let your speech be with grace. And then he says, seasoned with salt. He says, let let, let your words come from the right heart. Let them be the right type of words when you're dealing with sinners. And then you notice the third thing he did was he confessed the sins of his people. And he included himself in that confession. And he identified with his people. 
And he said, there, there are people, they're my people. And he named the sins very specifically. He didn't dilute it. He didn't cover it up. And he did it in a public way. So Ezra did all of these things very carefully and very prayerfully. And it says in verse 1, Now when Ezra had prayed and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. Now this verb, casting himself down in the Hebrew, means he threw himself down over and over and over again. So what he's doing is he's graphically demonstrating before the nation his deep sorrow and his deep sense of mourning over what has happened. And before Ezra even opens his mouth to speak to men about God, he has spent all this time talking to God about men. Now, that's a great pattern for you and I to learn. Before you talk to men about God, first of all, talk to God about men. And, you know, if Ezra had behaved like some of us, he'd just thrown, his, uh, thrown a fit and raged and shouted at those who had sinned, I think he would have had a very different response from the people. But having done all those things, Ezra recognized there's a next step, and there always is in dealing with failure and sin. The sin must then be confronted, and the sin must be dealt with. And as Ezra was praying, verse 1 tells us, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation. So tens of thousands of people, no doubt, gathered around Ezra. And they saw that this man had this great burden, this great grief. And then to Ezra's amazement, it says, the people wept very sore, very bitterly. They impact of Ezra's prayers and Ezra's example began to touch the lives of others, even those who had sinned themselves. Now, what does that tell us about prayer? What does that tell us about preparing to speak to people about their sin? That it's very important that we prepare ourselves. It's very important that we take time in prayer to pray for others. And You notice at this point, there hasn't been a sermon by Ezra. There hasn't been an action by Ezra in terms of dealing with the sin. All he has done is take time to cry unto the Lord. And it begins to change lives. And what a lesson there is there for us, that God can begin to work on the lives of others simply through our prayers, simply through our example. And verse 2 tells us, and one man in particular then rises up. Now, I don't know why Ezra didn't speak first, but this man Shechaniah spoke first. It may well be that as he prayed and fasted and cried unto the Lord, that the Lord revealed this to Ezra. Don't you say anything. Just you wait on me. I'll raise up someone. And Shechaniah, he stood up Now, his name, Shechaniah, means the one in whom God inhabits, God fills. And he certainly lived up to that name because God was just speaking through this man, Shechaniah. And Ezra stands back and lets him speak. And he says in verse 2, we have trespassed, this man, Shechaniah. 
Again, he doesn't hide himself, dilute himself or dilute the sin or try to withdraw himself from the people of God. He identifies with them just like Ezra did. And even though it appears from what we read in this chapter, Shechaniah himself had not taken a pagan wife. This man is grieved and broken and identifies with the sins of his people. And he recognizes the error. But then he says in verse 2, Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. The repentance that Shechaniah could see in the weeping of the people was evidence that God was at work. The fact that these people were weeping in this way, Shechaniah was able to conclude, there's maybe hope here. God may yet forgive us. God may yet restore us as a nation and have mercy upon us. And he strikes when the iron's hot, when he sees this in verse 3, he says, now therefore, in light of what we can see, there's a revival underway. And he says, now therefore, let us make a covenant with our God. Let's come back to God and renew our relationship with him. Really, that's what he's saying in this covenant. And he says, put away all the wives and such as are born of them. So Shechaniah recognizes as well, what must happen? These pagan wives with their pagan religion and their ungodly morals and idolatrous ways and all those children that are part of their family must be put out of the nation. No equivocation, no compromise, no dilution of the solution. This must happen. He says, according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to this, the law. In other words, he says, God's word must be upheld. This man, Shechaniah, says. Now, this was especially difficult for this man to do because we're told in verse 2, he's the son of Jehui or Heel, one of the sons of Elam. But if you go to verse 21, you'll see, and of the sons of Harim, Masiah, and Elijah, and Shemaiah, and Jehiel, oh, his own father, and his own relatives, his uncles, had married pagan wives. And Shechani says, no, it has to, uh, the, the separation must occur. God's word must be upheld. And Shechaniah does something that shows that he has a very biblically balanced view of God. He understands that God's angry with sin. It's very clear in what he says. But he also understands that God is a God of mercy and forgiveness if a sinner repents. And while he denounces the sin, in no uncertain terms, Shechaniah says, yes, there's hope because God is a God of mercy and a God of forgiveness. And if we come to him and cry unto him as a people and deal with the sin, God will forgive us and there'll be hope in the nation of Israel, this new nation. Now, as I said, I don't know why Ezra waited. I assume that God revealed this to him. Let Shechaniah speak. Maybe God understood better that it would be more acceptable to the people if someone who had been born and brought up among them in Jerusalem 
Shekinah, rather than a foreigner from the outside like Ezra was to make this solution. Coming from a man like Shekinah, whose own family were tied up in this sin, it would carry more authority and would have been more impactful upon the people. But for whatever reason, Ezra pauses and lets Shekinah speak, and he clearly was right to do because God blessed it. And Shekinah says in verse 4, Arise, he speaks to Ezra now. He says, For this matter belongeth unto thee. This is your responsibility now, Ezra. You're the one that God has appointed, the king has appointed to rule over uh, this people down in the land of Israel, and you must take the authority in now dealing with this sin. Now, what will Ezra do? Verse 5. Then arose Ezra amid the chief priests and Levites and all Israel to swear that they should do according to this word. So the first thing Ezra does is he calls the leaders and then the people under the leaders. And he says, you need to take an oath before God. Make a solemn promise that whatever it costs, and it's going to cost for many of you to lose your wives and even the children from those relationships. You will honor God over family. You will put God first in this matter. And notice what happens. Verse 5, and they swear. There was unanimity, or at least almost unanimity, to this solution. And clearly God was at work. There was a revival going on in the hearts of the people. And notice who Ezra begins with. He begins with the leaders because he knows if those at the top are not right, then those below them were unlikely to follow in honoring the Lord. And he says, no, you at the top, you start. You're the ones who took the responsibility of leadership. Now lead. And when you lead, others will follow. And they did. And it says, verse 7, they made proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem unto all the children of the captivity. They should gather themselves together unto Jerusalem. So he says, we've got to deal with this quickly. There's another step. Not only must you confront the sin now and confront the sinners, but you must deal with the sin quickly. That's a sign of true repentance. It has to be dealt with quickly. And he says in verse 8, and whosoever would not come within three days according to the counsel of the princes and elders and all his substance should be forfeited and himself separated from the congregation of those that had been carried away. So Ezra gathered all the leaders and he says, listen, in order to settle this matter, in order to make right with God, you need to call every single man who is in this nation up to Jerusalem within three days. Not one is to be left behind, from the highest to the lowest. And if they don't come, it's a sign of their disrespect to God's word. It's a sign of their guilt. And they will be cut off from this nation. They will have no part to play in this nation. And Ezra's dealing with this sin, and he's dealing with it in a severe way. He's dealing with it in a direct way. And we're told when he gathers them together, Ezra himself doesn't eat bread or water. He himself separates not just from the bread, but from water itself. 
In other words, he doesn't have time to set himself to these necessities of life. He's so focused on this matter. He knows this is pivotal. This is what we call an existential moment. The whole existence of the nation of Israel depends on this decision, whether the people will truly honor God, whether the people will truly go through with this painful decision to cut themselves off from these pagan nations, from these ungodly people. Of course, there's a lesson to you and I in all of this. The measure of a person's true repentance is how quickly, how thoroughly they're willing to cut off their sinful ways. How quickly and how thoroughly they're willing to deal with this. And Ezra here setting the test and he's showing you and I this is what's required to deal with the sin. But then notice what happens. Verse 12, then all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice. Oh, there's a passion here, but there's a unity. As thou hast said, so must we do. What, what did he say in verse 11? Now, therefore, make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers. In many ways, that's the easy bit. Say you're sorry. Say you're wrong. Well, many people will say a prayer if that's required. But then he goes on in verse 11 to say, separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wives. This is where it's going to get really costly. And the people say, we'll do it. As you have said, we'll do it. But verse 13, the people add a precondition. And they said, but the people are many. And it is a time of much rain. And we are not able to stand without, neither is this a work of one day or two, for we are many that have transgressed in this thing. They said, this is a huge problem, Ezra. And the rain is pouring down and is uncomfortable. And we need to take time to do this properly. And we need to go through the whole nation one by one, every family in the nation one by one, and examine every wife and every home and every relationship so that we make sure no one is exempt from this de dealing with this sin. And then they said in verse 14, let now our rulers of all the congregation stand and let all them which have taken strange wives in our cities come at appointed times and with them the elders of every city and the judges thereof until the fierce wrath of our God for this matter be turned from us. So the people said, listen, this needs to be done very carefully. This needs to be done very preferably. This needs to be done thoroughly. And it says they then began to do this, verse 16, and they called the leaders after the houses one by one. And it says, all of them by their names were separated and sat down in the first day of the 10th month to examine the matter. So they did this. Ezra agreed to this. Now, why did they deal with this matter in this way? And I think it was for a number of reasons, but there was a key reason. If you remember previous to this in the Old Testament, when God set up the nation of Israel as a holy nation. He made provision for those from Gentile nations to join the holy nation if they were willing 
to repent of their sins, give up their pagan ways, and give up their pagan nationalities, and come and join the people of God. There was that provision. And if you remember, Rahab was one of the earliest to embrace that provision and to leave her pagan ways, her ungodly ways, her idolatrous ways, her immoral ways, and join the people of God. And God accepted her into the nation. And Moses and Joshua and all the people of God, they embraced such people. And Rahab was accepted under Joshua. And then later on, Ruth, the Moabites, gave up her nation, gave up her pagan ways, and was received into the family of God in Bethlehem. So there was this provision that if someone from a pagan nation was willing to give up their sin, because that's really what the root of the problem was. It wasn't a racial distinction. It was a sin distinction. Then they would be allowed to come and join the family of God. And this time that the people asked for, I believe Ezra was wise, no doubt led by God to say, okay, let's do that. What was going to happen now was all these men who had married these pagan wives, these wives would be given the opportunity to repent of their sin, to declare publicly that they had left their old ways, their old idolatries, their old immoralities, their old values, and like Ruth and Rahab were willing to declare, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. His values will be my values. And any woman who was willing to make that declaration would be allowed to join the people of God. And this process took three months to complete because it was so extensive, so careful, so prudent. Now, was there any opposition to this? Verse 15 says, yes, there was. And there always is opposition because anytime God's work goes forward, the devil always opposes. Remember what Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. doesn't say they won't try, just won't prevail against it. And verse 15, it says, Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, were employed about this matter, and Meshulam and Shabbathai, the Levite, helped them. So there was four men named who got involved in opposition to what Ezra had proposed. And no doubt they used all kinds of reasoning. No doubt they said, this is too narrow-minded. This is too strict. This is too sudden. It's cruel. Maybe they even used spiritual language and said, God hates divorce. Maybe they said, well, what about the children? It's not their fault. They're innocent. And they shouldn't be find themselves cut off from their natural fathers, their biological fathers. This is wrong. And no doubt they whipped up all kinds of opposition against Ezra, these four men. Of course, it's very interesting. If you read carefully, you discover in verse 29 that this guy, Meshulam, was one of those who had married a pagan wife. No doubt there was self-interest in his opposition. These four men led the opposition against Ezra and the leaders, but they didn't prevail because the people said, no, this must happen. And you know, 
this is going to be a very difficult examination or cross-examination because as these leaders go around the nation and talk to these men, confront them about their sin, confront their wives and question them and confront the children and question them, this is going to splinter homes. This is going to splinter neighborhoods. This is going to divide families. It's going to be painful. It's going to lead to gossip and controversy. And there's going to be a lot of people say, well, don't get involved. Why are we whipping up trouble here? It's going to offend our neighbors, the, the other nations. How, how are they going to react? And we're not a strong people. We're just a very limited people now. We just got back from Babylon and now you're stirring up trouble with our neighbors. And you know, when you're a man of God and a woman of God, and you are called to confront sin, especially if you're a church leader, it's very difficult because in confronting sin in the lives of others, not only must you examine yourself, but it's always a very painful thing to do. And you don't know what way the person is going to react. And sometimes they can react in a very unpleasant way. Sometimes it can bring great division and you get blamed and misunderstood. Just this week, I had to go to a home and speak to a family. And there were a number of unsaved in that home. And I had to confront them about their sin and say to them, if you're not saved, you're going to go to hell. And say that personally to them in their home. And as I was going there, I was praying as I went there that God would give me the wisdom what to say, but also the wisdom of what not to say. And even as we had the conversation, the initial conversation, I was very conscious, how am I going to bring this round to the gospel? And how am I going to bring this confrontation? Because as soon as you raise the gospel, there's going to be a division here. And sure enough, when I brought the sword of the gospel into that house, there were some that said, I believe. But there are also others who said, I won't believe. And you know, when I left that home that night, I left a divided home, spiritually speaking, because there were some in that home who left in a different family from the others in that home. Some belonged to the family of God and others were left in the family of the devil. And that's a very difficult thing to do, to confront sinners about their sin. And Ezra and the people had to do that and it took three months. We're told it took from the 10th month, verse 16, all the way in verse 17 to the first month, three months long. But eventually it was done. And eventually the matter was resolved. Now, this was painful and the only way, but it was the only way for God's word to be honored and the nation to be kept pure. But then from verse 18, all the way to the end of the chapter, we have a list. And it's not a glamorous list. Maybe you've always said, I'd love to have my name in the Bible. Well, it's good to have your name in the Bible if you're there for doing a good deed. But it's a terrible thing to have your name in the Bible in the list of shame, like these people. And it's interesting in verse 18 how it begins. It says in verse 18, And among the sons of the priests. Ho, ho, ho. So these were not just Levites. Remember, not all the Levites were priests from the tribe of Levi. 
but within the sons of Aaron, the descendants of Aaron from the tribe of Levi, they were the priests. So they were the, you could almost call the spiritual elite of the nation. And old Ezra records among the sons of the priests, the spiritual elite, the leaders of the nation, the ones who were meant to sacrifice in the holy place on behalf of the nation, there were found that that had they were found that had taken strange wives, namely the, of the sons of Joshua or Joshua, the very high priest himself, right at the very top of the spiritual ladder of the leaders of the nation. This man records that of the priests, 17 priests were contaminated with this sin. And then we discover there were 10 Levites that were involved in this sin. So the Levites who are not priests. And then we discover there were over 87 other men who were found guilty to have partaken in this sin. Significant men, many of them powerful men. And they were dealt with before the Lord. Now, the presence of children, as you read here, must have made this separation especially painful. But it had to be done. And God demanded that it was done. You can't be half-hearted with sin and compromise. And notice it says, verse 19, and they gave their hands. In other words, they took an oath that they would do this. They would put away their wives. And being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their trespass to show their sincerity. They brought a sin offering to the house of the Lord and said, we were wrong to marry these women. And these women now, they refuse to repent of their sins. We're wrong to continue in these relationships. And they must be annulled and put away. Now let me finish by talking in a very general sense. Because, you know, Ezra and the leaders were very successful in confronting this sin and dealing with this sin. But not every believer was as effective and efficient as Ezra. If you remember, Eli was the high priest. And although Eli was willing to scold his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, he wasn't willing to deal with his sons, put them out of the priesthood. And what a terrible tragedy it brought to the house of Levi and the family of Levi as well as to the nation itself, when Eli refused to face down these rebellious sons according to the word of the Lord. And even King David himself, how many times did he make the same mistake? If you go to 2 Samuel, I was reading this, I'm thinking of this passage, chapter 13 and verse 21. It's the incident of the rape and it's even hard to use the language to describe what went on here. The rape of Tamar, the daughter of David, by her half-brother Amnon, the son of David. So they were from different wives of David, these two children, Amnon and Tamar. And Amnon raped her in a fit of lust. And when David heard, verse 21, the Bible says, when King David heard of all these things, he was very wroth, and he was right to be angry. 
But you notice what happens next? Nothing. David doesn't even speak to Amnon, let alone deal with him for what he had done. And then we discover in the end of this chapter, because David didn't deal with it, that Absalom murdered. And it said in verse 37, and David mourned for his son every day. David was upset over Absalom murdering his brother Amnon, but he wasn't willing to deal with it. In fact, if you look to 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 24, Joab engineers the return of Absalom after murdering his brother. Now, murder required Absalom to be put to death. That was God's law. He had murdered his brother Amnon in cold blood. And under the law of God, and David was the ultimate authority on earth in the nation, Absalom should shed his blood. But what happens? Verse 23, So Joab arose, went to Geshur, and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the next verse should be, And David ordered his capital punishment for murder, executed the sentence upon him. But it says, And the king said, Let him turn to his own house, and let him not see my face. In other words, David says, He's done wrong. David recognized he had done wrong. In fact, he had done a serious evil. He had done a terrible thing. But rather than dealing with him the way he should be dealt with, David says he's just not going to be allowed to come into the king's palace. There's going to be a minor slap on the wrist for Absalom. But then David does worse. Because in verse 33, we're told that Absalom engineered a return. And in verse 33, so Joab came to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. When Absalom manipulated an entrance into the palace, in other words, he was daring David to deal with him. And he puts this show on, bowing himself to the ground, pretending to be humble, and David's soft heart, loving his son more than loving the Lord. David says, okay, come back. And they just embraced. And there wasn't even a rebuke of Absalom. Never mind a punishment of Absalom. There was no seeking of God's will. And of course, when you break God's law like this, nobody lives happily ever after. Because we know what happens next. Absalom leads a rebellion against God's king, David. Absalom leads an uprising and drives David from the throne and tries to murder David. And things will never be right between Absalom and David. Now, this is not the only incident. If you go to 1 Kings chapter 1, 1 Kings chapter 1, after the disaster with Absalom and Amnon, you would think David would have learned his lesson. But Absalom had another brother, a younger brother, who was just as ham- was a handsome young man like Absalom. No doubt he reminded David of Absalom. And having lost Absalom, no doubt David 
had a great affection for Adonija. And we're told Adonija exalted himself, verse 5 of 1 Kings chapter 1, saying, I will be king. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. So he created a great spectacle, almost like here's the king in waiting. If you see the President of the United States coming with all these limousines, 20 or 30 limousines, it's a reminder, someone powerful's here. That's the image. And Adonijah did the same. He surrounded himself with all these limousines of chariots and horsemen. And they were to let everybody know, here's someone impressive. No doubt this tall, good-looking, young, powerful man was so impressive and charismatic. No doubt people were saying, well, you know, he's just like Absalom. He's just like a young David. Now, David should have spotted the signs here, the danger signs, and said to Adonijah, you put that away. God has already made clear that Solomon is going to be the king. And David should have put that son down, disciplined him. But notice what happens. Verse 6, the Bible reveals, And his father had not displeased him at any time, saying, Why hast thou done so? David never even called him to account, never even rebuked him, never forbid him in doing this, even though David knew it, even though he knew what a mistake he had made with Absalom in letting Absalom rise up, in letting Absalom seize the throne. Even though David, being a very shrewd and wise man, could see the consequences, he just didn't want to discipline. Why? Notice what it says in verse 6. And he also was a very goodly man, and his mother bare him after Absalom. In other words, David was drawn to this young man, Adonijah, who looked just like Absalom, handsome, charismatic, reminded David of the one he had lost, David just didn't want to discipline him. Didn't want to say to him, you're wrong. Didn't want to say, stop it. And you know, for years, King David refused to discipline his own children. Refused to confront their sins. Refused to punish them. Chastise them. And ultimately, he paid the price and the, his family eventually fell apart. Listen to what Solomon said in Proverbs 29, verse 15. And notice these words. It says, the rod and reprove give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. Well, that's what happened to David's children. They brought shame to their father and to their mother and simply waiting and waiting and refusing to deal with sin will always multiply the problem. Always will. Now let me wrap this up by saying this. Ezra chapter 10 is one of the saddest chapters in the Bible. There are no winners in this chapter. Because even those who were successful in dealing with their sin left behind broken relationships, left behind hurting children, hurting former wives. And that's what sin does. But then we have to finish and say this. Ezra's humility, his meekness, 
his courage, and above all things, his commitment to in holding up God's word and maintaining its power and its authority in his nation ultimately brought blessing to the people of God. And if you and I were to sum up what Ezra did in these two chapters, we could summarize it with what we could say three C's. And maybe these are easier for you to remember. Three steps that you and I must use in dealing with our prodigal, in dealing with the backslider, in dealing with the sinning saint. Number one, C number one is consider. He took time to consider. Consider the facts. He took time to grieve as he considered and wait on God. Didn't rush into judgment. Didn't rush into action. But then the second C, you notice, is confess. Ezra took time to confess his own sin and the sins of his people and to ask God for forgiveness and grace in this situation. So the first thing he did was to consider the matter carefully, prayerfully. The second thing he did was to confess the sins of his own life and the lives of his people. Didn't dilute it, didn't cover it up. But then the third thing that Ezra did, that David didn't do, that Eli didn't do, Ezra confronted the sin. And he confronted it right in public, right before those who had done the sin. And he dealt with it and he ensured that they dealt with it. He says, you swear an oath and then I'm going to stay here and watch until you completely do this. Cast out these sinners and cut off this before it destroys this nation. And you know, if you and I were to study Ezra chapter 9 and Ezra chapter 10, and then apply it to our lives, how much more effective would we be in dealing with sinning saints, in dealing with our own sin, and then being able to effectively deal with the sins of our children, the sins of our grandchildren, the sins of church members, the sins of our neighbors, our co-workers. Oh, how much better we would be, how more effective we would be if we would take time to follow those three C's, consider, confess, and then confront. Don't miss any of the steps and don't mix them up. Don't jump to the confrontation until you've done the considering and the confession because each step follows from the other and each step prepares you for the next one. And Ezra did this so well and he modeled for you and I the most effective way, I believe, to deal with sinning saints. Let us pray. Lord, we have learned so much from this man, Ezra. We bless your name for his memory and his example. We pray, Lord, that you would guide us to use the example of Ezra to not only face our own deficiencies and failures and weaknesses, but make us more effective in being able to confront sin in the lives of others. Give us grace, give us wisdom, give us the determination and the meekness of this man, Ezra, in our own lives. For we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.